Hello and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for December 1st, 2017. As you can tell from the ticking sound in the background of my reheating lunch, uh, we're in a bit of a hurry today. Um, this is a special edition. I'm trying to catch up with U.S. soccer presidential candidates and I was just able to catch up with uh, the one you might know best and that is Hall of Famer Eric Winalda. And so our conversation follows here. I don't really have much else by way of introduction except to remind you that the door is open for anyone else who is running. Uh, I should have Paul LaPointe on the next Ranting Soccer Dad next Wednesday and that would leave of the declared candidates that would leave um, Paul Caligiuri and Carlos Cordero. Uh, They're both welcome to be on the broadcast. I will um, step up my efforts to get them on here Um, It might be after the deadline to get nominations, which is December 12th. So if someone doesn't get the nominations, then I guess they won't be on the podcast, which is probably the least of their concerns. So in any case, this is my conversation from actually just earlier today uh, with U.S. soccer presidential candidate Eric Winalda. All right, so we're here with the busiest man in soccer, Eric Winalda, who is got to contact all these people and is uh, where where are you now? Are you in Atlanta? Are you in on the West Coast? Where are you? I'm I'm on the West Coast right now. I'm on my way actually to the airport, uh, and I will be making my way to the Carolina Cup uh, in Greensboro, and they're just outside of Greensboro actually. So it's gonna be a long day of travel. Uh, hopefully, I'll get okay. some stuff done on the plane, but. Uh, it's uh, all for amateur soccer today. It's going to be the adult amateur of Carolina, and I can't wait. Uh, awesome. And Greensboro is the town I worked for four years and where I met my wife. So it's uh, there you go. It, you know, it's a charmed place to be. Uh, I figured we would start with, uh, you know, there's obviously a Twitter audience for certain issues, and they, they're they on Twitter because I think they some of them don't have the best attention span. So I figured we'd knock that out early. And okay. that is. It may not be the biggest issue, but it is one that comes up. Promotion relegation. And right. obviously, you favor it. And I favor it, too, perhaps with some, with more reservations than you do. But the, the question for you is, what can the U.S. soccer president reasonably do? When it comes to promotion relegation, and first of all, I think I understand it. I think that's, that's part of the challenge for, for most. Um, when you when you try to get your arms around the idea of this country embracing uh, promotion and relegation, you're going to get a lot of pushback, mainly because the the process hasn't been fully explained. So it it's one of those um, it's one of those assumptions that people make that there's no financial benefit to it, and actually that's it's the polar opposite of that. It it's a situation where even clubs. Um, even if they were to have a, a poor season, would still be able to balance their books and financially gain from being relegated. And, it, and it's, there's plenty of uh, uh, examples of that in, in Europe. But, look, I, I think our country has done um, a, a very good job of introducing professional soccer to uh, to everybody. But And, and that initial plan and the single entity um, that, that still exists, 
is something that a lot of people have accepted because they've never seen it any other way. That, that's all they know. Um, and we have to remind ourselves of that. Not everybody gets up at 6 a.m. and watches the EPL or the Bundesliga or Syria uh, and has a, a you know affinity for that that component of soccer. Some people are just you know all about um, their local community. And so if you got somebody in you know in Kansas City uh, or Houston for that matter, is one of the newer clubs. Uh, New York, Minnesota is also very new. You, you sometimes. The idea of that might scare them, uh, Minnesota essentially, because they've just come in to the to the league, uh, and, and they would be terrified of the idea of going back down. But the the ideas of it, it, it makes the competition better. Uh, it certainly promotes accountability, and I think there's a wonderful opportunity within. But so it might take some time to explain that uh, the merit of um, promotion and relegation, but. Um, I do think it is something at some point that will be implemented in the United States. And you seem to be fairly amenable to uh, ways of mitigating financial loss. I, mean, you, I believe you mentioned parachute payments recently, which, of course, they do in England. And, right. And then uh, one thing that has, that has occurred to me is I've, I've been tinkering with the idea of putting in a relegation floor which is that if you meet the standards to be a professional club, yeah, um, I'm hesitant to see a club drop from the professional ranks to the amateur ranks, especially when it, you know we're not going to tap out the market for professional clubs in the United States in our lifetime. I mean, uh, well, we've we never opened have, it up, have we? We've we've never really right. We've, we've never. If, if if you ask yourself the question, um, what if? What if it was an um, uh, an open system? What, what if you know we've, we've, there's been places like Chattanooga have been teased in the past because uh, mm-hmm. of their their situation? But what if Chattanooga was given the opportunity to climb the ladder? What would happen in that town? How much money uh, that we are unaware of at this at this point could be uh, inserted into a business plan that would uh, make Chattanooga a very different place? I I, I think that. We need to be reminded of that. If there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh, and there is an opportunity within, I think that this country would surprise us. I mean, look at Detroit. Detroit is is, is a vibrant soccer community um, that is that would welcome the idea of, of uh, or the opportunity to, to climb that ladder, to see how far they can take it. And, of course, there's going to be standards that need to be met. But as the as a club, any club, uh, is given the opportunity to to uh, climb that ladder through through merit on on performance um, and competition. Uh, th- there will be excitement that they, that comes along with it. There will be drama, of course, but there will also be the opportunity to for people in their communities to understand uh, that this is something worth investing in because that's the way it's done in the rest of the world. It's it's, it's historical um, references will will certainly. Uh, give you a different perspective if you do your homework on it, and it's it's something that I, I again once it's understood, uh, it, it's something that can be embraced and would would make our country so much stronger uh, on, on many levels if if we were able to implement promotion and relegation. And so, as president, I mean, you you can't simply snap your fingers and say, okay, now the 
bottom three teams in MLS drop down to the NASL and, and so forth. Well, it doesn't have to be three. You know, right. It doesn't have to be right. three. Um, and that's and there's there's different models to look at. There's different uh, um, you know if you watch what Germany does, they'll they'll have a playoff, which which mm-hmm. is also a, a money making opportunity to, to be honest. But it also has tremendous drama and a lot of visibility because people want to see that. It's must see TV. So. There's there's different ways to do it. I mean, not just the parachutes that that allow clubs to not you know be decimated by by uh, you know, too much too much loss. And I, I, again, Bo, you and I've gone back and forth on this one. The schedule change almost has to go hand in hand, uh, simply mm-hmm. because it's if the if the season ends as it's going to here in a, in a, in a week or so, um, and the season is over, and some teams have found out that they've they've fallen into uh, a spot of relegation right now over the winter break is not the opportunity for them to rebalance their books. The summer months are therefore, mm-hmm. if you do have assets within your team and you have players that could be sold um, for a bigger number to allow you to, to reassess what you got and, and reinvest in your club and in maybe some younger players that need an opportunity that you can, you can build from. Uh, that's the accountability uh, part of this. This forces people to actually do the, the business of soccer, whether that be a president, a GM, a coach. Um, it, it really does make a heck of a lot more. Yeah, well, I, probably won't. Well, I have a plan for addressing the schedule, but it's long and complicated, and I'm not the one running. Doesn't correct. have to be. Doesn't have to be complicated. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole point. If uh, somebody once told me, or I think I, this might be Einstein, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, maybe you don't understand it yourself. So I, I think simplifying this is what what the goal should be to make it easier for everybody. I can probably explain it to a six-year-old, but I don't think I can explain it to people on Twitter. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's <totally understandable. laughs> that's a different challenge. And so the role of the president in this would really be one of persuasion, I guess. Correct. Or influence. Yeah. Right, and I, I, I okay. and I think that those are all conversations that need to be had with uh, the powers that be. I mean, it is it is. If you let's go to Twitter, for example, Twitter is 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 so frustrated with with uh, Major League Soccer's. Uh, well, they just don't want to talk about promotion and relegation, and they've just essentially uh, excused themselves from from the conversation. But Twitter will tell you, okay, why not create a one, two, three, four system? And allow MLS to completely operate outside of that, whereas they they, they essentially don't want to comply with uh, FIFA regulations or bylaws. So okay, fine, then you can be your own sanctioned entity over here, and then there there would be an entire league that uh, to the left of them. And that's that's something that Twitter has offered uh, through several people. And it's it's not entirely a bad idea. It, it is something that needs to be addressed at some point. We need to recognize that the United States is one of the only countries in the world that does not comply with the FIFA bylaws. Right now, and that leads to something else. And uh, for the, I guess I'll tell, uh, I'll say, okay, promotion, relegation, single issue, people, you can turn off the podcast now. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I will move on to. I don't know. I think it might come back up. You never know. Well, we'll see. I hope people want to listen to more than that. But um, but the, the next question I have is, you know, you do engage with people on Twitter, and you have for, for a long time. 
uh, in this process, and actually I, I would bet that you've done some of this before you decided to run for president, you're talking with people who run state youth associations, state adult associations, U.S. futsal, U.S. deaf soccer, U.S. power soccer. Uh, so what are the differences in conversations between those groups and what we talk about publicly in Twitter? Well, I think the you know, there's a lot of, I would say, commonality between all the people that, that are having this, this feeling of disenfranchise. It's not just state associations um, on the youth and, and the adult side. It's, it's that there, there really seems to be uh, a lack of inclusion. I, I think people just feel that, that the Federation, uh, at, some, at some point, and I don't know really when that, that started, uh, is, has taken the approach of just, you know what, we're going to mandate stuff and we don't really need your, your, your voice in this. We're going to make decisions without um, really having that conversation at all. So I think that, that one of the issues, or maybe the, the biggest issue, is a cultural problem that we have. And, and that cultural problem stems from the Federation's lack of ability to communicate. Um, I understand that the Federation for, for many years has has been run by the state associations. They needed the state associations. They couldn't do the business of soccer at all. They couldn't even put on an event without cooperation. And for them to now basically say, well, we, we've, we've built such a wonderful business now that we don't need you anymore, is probably, uh, well, it's not probably, it's, it's the wrong approach. The Federation needs to uh, kind of go back to some of those business practices of, of uh, engaging with the state association so that they can continue to facilitate soccer in this country. Uh, that's what I found. I, I found that, you know, where there's a, an element of disappointment. People feel that they're all working against each other. Uh, and yeah, that, that does kind of, well, it does, it does fall on the Federation's uh, uh, shoulders because it's their job to bring people together. It's their job to, to serve its members. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the situation that I, I, I have, that's the, the voice that I've heard from uh, the majority of the people I've spoken to since I started this process is that that conversation needs to change. It needs to be more of a partnership and a better relationship needs to be established. If we, and if we reestablish the we, uh, are ever going to be a soccer nation. Yeah, I've heard the disenfranchise. I, it seems like the commonality in a lot of the issues from the youth to the pro ranks is disenfranchisement and arrogance. Um, and I've, I've dealt with it too. And we've seen hints of it in the past. If you go back and read through annual general meeting transcripts, occasionally someone is kind of angry about something. It's often, right. it often comes up sort of arcane. It's like, you know, I can't believe the pro and the athletes all voted as a block on by law 4.2.5 paragraph 6 or something like that. And it, it's, um, but what we so often see and this isn't just soccer. This is historical. This is politics. One of my favorite historical stories is uh, one of the times the throne was up for dispute in England, and you had two factions fighting, literally fighting, and mm-hmm. then two other factions sitting on the sides sort of waiting to see who was going to start winning. And then they both rode in. Once it became apparent which side was going to win, they came riding in. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, here we go. Um, but... And, and then also you have sometimes you just described this election, by the way. That, is that what you're getting at? <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, because um, and you know, related to that, sometimes 
you have a powerful figure. It could be a dictator. It could be Matt Lauer, who's been in the news this week. And no one speaks up, but then when one person speaks up or enough people speak up, all of a sudden the dam bursts. Is that what you think we're seeing right now? You used the word revolution in, in talking with me earlier this week. Um, is that what you think we're, we're seeing now, that uh, that there are a lot of people who have been sort of quietly holding back and now they feel empowered to speak now that we have seven candidates in this race and six of them are legitimately outsiders? Well, I, I think I think there, there's a little truth to that. I, I think that we've, there was such a, uh, a high level of disappointment with the failure to qualify for a World Cup that that I it, it was very easy to, to to throw rocks at at the establishment. Um, and I, I I certainly wasn't one of those. I've been you know me for a while. I've I've been talking about some of these problems for six to eight years. And sure. some of my con- concerns, um, which I think it may have been in Philadelphia about four years ago, when the crowd laughed when I said, if we continue down this road, we will not qualify for the next World Cup. And the the, the, the audience laughed. It's CONCACAF. Of course we're going to make it. Yeah, it's <laughs> crazy. And what you when you start watching uh, some of some of the things that were, were happening, and, and I had, my, it's my job to monitor these things, uh, I just started to see some trends that that um, look like we 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 were going to have to be facing some of all fears, and that is the reality that we're facing now is not participating in a World Cup, and it, it, it's there is a certain sense of vulnerability with with Sunil um, that he has lost mm-hmm. some of his power to a certain extent, but I think that that the way that he has addressed the position, the way that he has had his hands in everything. Um, Really, it would, he set himself up for for this kind of criticism. Whereas the when he tried to exonerate himself from accountability, as if this wasn't you know really his fault, I'm just going to fire the coach and and and, and we're moving on. Uh, I think I, I think that that might have been the the tipping point for a lot of people. I, I think that they wanted to see a leader that said, "Listen, you know this this is a, a terrible day." And I have to take some of the blame for it um, as the president of U.S. soccer. And we, we never really got that. Well, at least the, the public never really got that sense um, that he was going to that he was going to hold himself accountable for what has happened. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but I, I, it began, and I believe Paul LaPointe were the uh, the three candidates that had already announced their candidacy prior to the Trinidad game. Um, right. So that that. That was something that I had felt strongly about for a long time, as you know. And, you know, I've, people ask me why I'm running, and I, I almost feel like I don't have an answer that my moral compass has brought me to this, this place. And it's, it's, it was the assumption that they would figure it out, that, that there's just too many resources for us not to figure it out. Uh, and our country will, of course, continue to go in the right direction. But it is not the case at all. We need to we need to get this train back on track. And I, I think it's certainly uh, gone a few miles in the wrong direction at this point. All right. That, this was kind of a weird question because it might ask you to put your um, to to walk in someone else's shoes for for a bit, or or try to guess at their motivation. I know that that's going to be a difficult question. But uh, one thing about this field. With the exception of Carlos Cordero, 
the people who are running now are people who have generally not been involved with U.S. soccer. Well, okay, Calajuri was on the board, uh, you know, a decade ago. But, you know, there are many task forces, there are many uh, committees and so forth, and, you know, those things are generally available online, and you see a lot of former athletes involved. Uh, I think Kate Markgraf has been on several, Cindy Cohn has been on several. Um, but these are all people who are not running. The people who are running are people who have not been involved uh, for the most part, again, with a little bit of an exception, and not to say that you haven't been involved in UPN, U.S. soccer lowercase, but um, I find it curious that people aren't running from within the organization. Do you have any idea why that is? Of course we know why that is. I think that that when you – you've ever heard somebody utter the phrase the company line? There's, there's – it's very hard when you are part of an organization um, to speak up. Because it, whether that's a paid position, where that's uh, a company that, that that you've been with for a long time, or that's a company that you feel that you have a future in, or you you, know, you hold stock in, it's it's there's a there's a feeling there of okay, I don't want to I don't want to rock the boat here. Uh, I, I understand how things. Maybe I can have part of the conversation that I want to have a little bit of influence, possibly to to, to, to say. What a half or maybe a quarter of what I really need to say uh, to have an opinion about things because over the course of the last 20 years under the leadership that we've had at the federation, you speak up, you're eliminated. Mm-hmm. You you are eliminated from the conversation. You are removed from the room, and that is not a mystery to anybody on the inside. Now, people that are on the outside are on the outside for a reason, myself included. I've, I'm not the kind of person that's going to give you a quarter of what I think. I'm very honest, and I, I have enough experiences to, that I felt that, including myself in those conversations with the intention of helping, uh, was was something that was necessary. Um, it has been deemed unnecessary, and when you when you watch the company fail from the outside, sometimes some of us, to be honest, stop caring. We just said, you know what, they they're going to do things their way. Let's just hope and pray that they get it right. Uh, I don't want to fight with them anymore. I don't want to. I don't want to get involved in that political mess. Uh, it, it's just. It's just not worth it. Uh, a lot of the people that that, that you're, you're mentioning um, needed an opportunity in this in this industry. Uh, they recognize that working with the federation or going through uh, a committee or a council is is certainly a great avenue to do that. And um, that position is commendable because they are on the inside and they're trying to help. But to expect them to have a voice to say something against the establishment, against the people who have put them in that position, uh, is, is a very difficult spot to be in. And I've, I've also found that people that are on the inside uh, have very different conversations uh, privately than they do publicly. And I think there's a there's with what has happened and the way that the country has essentially failed in the last, uh, I would say, three to four years. I mean, to a certain extent, maybe even eight years. Um, there's finally that recognition of, okay, enough's enough. Enough is enough. I know, I've know i known what's going wrong. I know how I can help. And, and maybe now is the time to, uh, to to force myself into the conversation to ensure that 
there is going to be uh, growth and there is going to be um, stability. Because right now, if we're really being honest, and we, we talk a lot about foundation and, and how far we've come and how great this country is. And at times, to me, it looks like a house of cards. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm really worried about that. Right. And and you have mentioned that there are good people in U.S. soccer, both on the committees and on the staff. And uh, and you know, I I will, I should put my hand up and say, in case Kate Markgraf is listening, and I don't want her mad at me that you know, I don't think either of us would blame Kate Markgraf for not running for president because it it is it's a sacrifice to do so, a fairly substantial one. Well, but look, wait, let's let's with, as far as Kate is concerned. I mean, I've spoken to Kate uh, about this, and she takes this very seriously. People need to know that this yeah. is a very serious time, and it it, it demands um, serious people who who want to make sure that their decision is the appropriate one. And I commend her on that. She is someone who I have an immense amount of respect for. Uh, she's went into also the uh, broadcasting sphere. She does a great job there. There's a lot mm-hmm. more to Kate than 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 we know. And I, yeah. I think that's part of um, the problem at times is that, okay, they've, they've, they've found their way into the system there. They have a position where they can have some influence, but in the past, let's just say this is the last couple of decades, when someone really shows some promise as a really intelligent uh, component of this, that doesn't always necessarily mean that they're going to get the appropriate job. That, that almost puts them uh, in a position where they are feared because they go, okay, hold on. We didn't know that they were that smart. Now what do we do? we got to make sure that this person doesn't climb the, the corporate ladder too fast because they'll take our job. So there's that part of it too, and that exists in all businesses. But it certainly is a, uh, it certainly is a problem when it comes to uh, our country and our federation and the way we have uh, addressed people that, that should be having much more of a, a, a role and a say in, in the soccer decisions than they've been kind of pushed to the side at times. So I'm not saying Kate falls into that um, uh, right. category, but I am saying that she's an incredibly intelligent woman who um, uh, I'm getting to know a little bit better over the, the next couple of months simply because she does have a vote, and I have to convince her uh, mm-hmm. that that I'm taking this just as serious as she is. Sure. And so related to this, about um, people within the organizations, within U.S. soccer. Um, there's been some suggestion, and I'm inquiring about it to various uh, to various people who have nominating power. Um, I'm inquiring about it, as, you, as I know you heard about <laughs> the other day. And um, I, one of the questions I'm asking is, are, not, are some organizations afraid to nominate someone other than Sunil? And oh, of course. And so why? I, I think I, I think that that's well. I mean, let's think about that for a second, okay? Sure. Um, now, theoretically, it's secret, right? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, for the first time, and I'm very proud of uh, Illinois and, and New Hampshire, um, simply because when when they nominated my campaign, they did it publicly. Right. Um, that was uh, you know, not just firing off an email to you know 30 or 40 people, but but announcing it on Twitter. Uh, and, and, and announcing that they've recognized a need for change. Uh, that's that's the kind of leadership yeah. you actually want. You want people and just that, for, that... But yeah, and, and just for the record, you have other nominations, too, though. Right? You, you have other nominations, too. Yeah, right? and, and, look, and, I, and I think some of the other states, some of the other states who have nominated our 
campaign or organizations for that matter. Um, it's, it's, it's up to them whether they want to make that public knowledge. It's not, you know, up to sure. me to, to take to Twitter or get on a podcast or, or get on television or the radio and, um, put them in a compromising position because I, it, it, it's their decision to nominate. And yeah, there's a lot of people who do this secretively, uh, or mm-hmm. privately, if you will. Um, but, you know, we've been able to, uh, to achieve a lot of nominations from, from different parts of the country. And some of those places surprised me a bit. Um, they were places that I, I expected uh, maybe that, that uh, those relationships with Sunil to prevail. But we've seen, we've seen people rescind their nominations. We've seen people recognize a change and want, a, and want a different way of doing things, whether they feel disenfranchised or they just simply they just have had it. So it's, it's, uh, it's a unique process, and it's different for everybody. But what, what isn't talked about at all, uh, when, when we talk about transparency and we talk about fairness and, and all this, look, we, we, nobody knew what the nomination process was until it was announced in September. It was voted on in February. Uh, maybe some people on the inside knew, but when the process was finally announced in September, uh, then there were people like Steve Gans and myself uh, who were going to act accordingly. Now, Sunil Gulati knew about the nominating process well before anybody else. So he fired off over 100 letters of, of endorsement or nomination uh, soliciting an endorsement from all of the state associations before anybody else had a chance. Well, that's so, more than 100. I, I counted about 115 organizations total that can, that can nominate. Is that about right? Correct. Correct. So yeah. they all got a letter from Mr. Galati um, before six of these of uh, the other candidates even moved. Um, right. That was, you know, in my opinion, I think Steve Gantz had made a point of it. I, I'm fairly sure Michael Winograd has had um, some opinions mm-hmm. about it as well. As, as lawyers, I, I think that they um, were, were upset about that. I, I just accepted it for what it was because it's, I'm fairly used to um, having the the the, uh, the deck stacked against me, so I I felt that it was necessary to connect with these people uh, and go through the, the 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 process that was appropriate to me, meaning meet people, find out where they stand, and then we were able to achieve a lot of a nom- uh, nominations in that because of that. Now, right, was was the rescinding process fair? Well, the rescinding process was created to allow Carlos Codero to have an opportunity. Which oh. is is really the way that went down, and no one really wants to to bring that up uh, out loud. There was sure. clearly, but some it could also with, benefit you, though, right? right because it, it, did, I've, I've already achieved the, the, the you know well over the number of nomination letters necessary, but there are sure. other candidates who have not achieved a letter of nomination. Now, the initial bylaws stated as follows: in the event that two candidates would be nominated by one state association, they would negate each other and make that nomination or that state obsolete in the process, meaning you need essentially three to four um, to to be officially a, a candidate. Now, mm-hmm. let's say that dirty politics prevailed and they had, someone had the ability to get someone to file, fire off an email in the 11th hour um, that would, and you had, let's say you only had three, and then 
someone would produce a piece of paper or a document that stated, oh, no, there's two nominations. I'm sorry, you don't qualify anymore. That's essentially the way the bylaws initially read. Now, what they uh, amended was that they they essentially decided that there would be a a rescinding process where you had until the 27th. Um, They made every state association or anybody who had filed a nomination aware of that, uh, that they could rescind their endorsement of a candidate to make that uh, make that state free or that organization free for anybody else to achieve nomination without that first initial bylaw of if there's two out of the same state or organization, then they would negate each other. So it was it was a little wrinkle that was inserted in there because I think uh, Mr. Cordero looked at the lay of the land and realized, okay, there's not a whole lot left. Mm. What do I do now? And um, that was the steps that they took to ensure that that he would be able to um, achieve nomination, which he still, to my knowledge, has not been able to to do. Okay, so we're we're speaking on December first. The deadline and I just received an email confirming the deadline is December twelfth. Is right. there any doubt in your mind that Sunil Gulati is running? Oh, there's a lot of doubt in my mind. I think that what he's doing right now is. Um, we've seen a couple of uh, organizations rescind uh, their nomination mm-hmm. and endorsement in Mr. Gulati. So we've seen that number kind of fluctuate over the course of the last uh, couple of days. And I think what he's doing is he's assessing how much uh, enthusiasm is there out there for him. Uh, you know, it, right. There's still enough people who believe that he's the right guy. And when it's, the case that some state associations are rescinding, uh, other state associations are reaching out um, to other candidates and asking to have a conversation about what their platform and how did they believe that they can make a difference. And of course, we've also had we've had candidates, not myself, um, send letters asking state associations to rescind, which I I thought was bad form, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's all part of this. This is this is a this is everyone trying to figure out uh how much power does Sunil have. Now let's let's, right. let's also face it. Let's let's face the fact that this is a guy that's been in power for a long time. And the fact that he hasn't alerted anybody uh whether or not he's gonna run or not um is just one more indication that he's making this about himself. He wants all of us to sit back and ask the question you just asked me, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And to be quite honest, I don't care um, whether he runs or not. And I, I think that the, the ideology that, that that he has exemplified over the course of ever since I've known him um, is not something that works. Even though there there has been this idea that the business has, has done really well in this country, the business of soccer. Uh, you've heard me say this before, and, and I'll say it again. I don't think we've ever engaged in the business of soccer at the professional level. And I think that the fact that it's the youth organizations are as fragmented as they are is also a reflection of bad leadership. So, yeah, right. it's time for change. It, it is, and I think people are recognizing that. That's why they rescind. That's why they want to have a different conversation, because we all want the same thing, Bo. We want this country to be a better soccer nation. And we want to go into a World Cup believing we got a chance, not uh, 
wondering if this is really what we should be doing or that in uncertainty and that insecurity that we're experiencing right now is is mainly because of one guy. All right, so let's let's hit a couple of those issues and I won't keep you forever because I know you have uh I'm, I'm just get somebody else is driving and I'm going to the airport. So we're we're good. We we're we're okay. All right. You're you're worth the time. Uh, I I appreciate that and I I'll also I will make sure people actually listen to this. So and uh <laughs> right. so if you can tweet it out that'll probably help. Um so the um let's talk women's soccer for a minute. Um Early in the campaign, you were talking about how you want to tear up the uh, the deal that they just signed. Um, now, now we haven't we meaning you know the media and other people we haven't seen that new CBA because you know CBAs tend to become public only when they're part of lawsuits, and so we haven't seen it. Um, mm-hmm. Have Have you seen it, or do you do you know women's players? Right, uh, I've, you... I've read I've read big portions of it. Um, and I understand it. I've spoken to some of the lawyers who who were involved, and, I, and this is not to say, you know, cause when I said that publicly, I didn't. I, it wasn't my um, intention to demean any of the, the the people that negotiated this contract. But the reality is, I've been on that other side, man. I've been yeah. a player, and I've dealt with the federation and how they they manipulate uh, and how they they use. Uh, fear as a tactic at times, um, and those deals never come out. Um, in, in all fairness to both sides, fair, they're just they're not. They're, they're they're always going to be in favor of the federation. Now, the reason why I think I said that is because even though I, I rip it up, and I don't even know how much would actually get changed in the end, but I I would without you know bending over backwards and you know, conceding on everything, I just don't feel that the, the the women's game or the women's team, as far as the national team is concerned, have ever been treated fairly. I just, mm-hmm. I know that because I know them. I know what we went through on the men's side, and and I know how we felt. And it's it's some of the horror stories that you hear from from ex players and players that are, that are on the team now um, really give you the idea that that relationship that doesn't exist between the federation and its players. Uh, it's not a partnership, and one of the challenges that I think would be for any uh, anybody who's president of our United States Soccer Federation would to try and mend some of those fences. I, I think I think they've on numerous occasions uh, uh, failed to recognize the res- and respect uh, our women. And I'd said also that I think you know, as far as equal pay goes. Um, I don't. I don't think there's anybody in, in the modern world who's going to tell the three-time world champion that they don't deserve equal pay at this point. And of course, we're going to look at the numbers, but this is this is something that that it's pretty much a no-brainer. And I, I would encourage, even if I'm if I fail to to win uh, the election, I would encourage whoever that president might be to please reconsider uh, the the. Uh, the deal that was struck on April 4th, as well as just the, the, the relationship between the women's and the men's national teams moving forward, it needs to get better. Because when you get to the specifics, it gets a little bit difficult because there are some differences. The, the women uh, have asked for and received salaries, which the men do not have. Um, well, no, so you, know what, you know what? Going back in time, there's a lot of yeah. similarity. 
an mm-hmm. incredible amount of similarities between what is happening now in the women's game and where maybe the U.S. national team was in the late 80s, early 90s. Before we had a league, uh, I had right. a salary with the United States Soccer Federation, and I played for a club as well. And what and those numbers are very similar to what exists now to for for a player in the uh, in WSL and that's also playing or competing with the national team. So, and and that you really need to understand another thing about the league uh, that it, that now exists in this country. Um, and federation has done great work, and they've and they've done. They've done just about as much as they can do under the under the um, uh, under the circumstances to ensure that the league continues to uh, to grow, and they should be commended on that. Because there's three four million dollars that's getting dumped into that into the league to make sure that that um, the losses aren't as bad as they may have been uh, under under different circumstances. So let's give the federation some credit here, uh, a lot of credit mm-hmm. when it comes to the women's game. However, I still think. I, I, I still think we haven't celebrated uh, their accomplishments and respect them uh, for their ability to have a wonderful future uh, in, the, in the deal that they currently have. So I just want to make that clear. I, I do understand what they're going through, though. Okay, and do, do you see anything else that the U.S. that USSF can be doing with the NWSL? Well, I, I you know when I looked at it and I. Um, I did get to to see the presentation the other day, and I thought Amanda did a really good job um, presenting that. And with the relationship that now exists with A and E with Lifetime, which is which is terrific, it, and it really is a wonderful um, uh, partnership, if you will, because uh, they have essentially they're telling stories and they're introducing us uh, to the to these professional women who. We need to get to know them, and that's how you build stars. I mean, Michael Cohen, uh, who was a very much a part of the initial stages of Major League Soccer in the television side, is now really you know, taking the reins there with with that deal. Um, and it's 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 something that needs a little bit more attention. And I think in, in, in its infancy, uh, that relationship and the fact that it's on television, and you got Allie Wagner on television, you got Kate, you know, covering games. Um, Heather Mitts. I mean, they, they, they've they've put a lot into uh, the production of those games, and they've done uh, a fantastic job. That those relationships uh, that exist when when we don't qualify for a World Cup, all of a sudden it's a different conversation with the Coca Colas of the world and the Visas and, and the big sponsors, and AT and T's, and and it just is. But there can be a means of figuring out a way to to uh, uh, share those sponsorships, to allow um, to allow those opportunities to exist for the players on a personal level as well as the organizations to to share um, more of that sponsorship dollars. Okay, to quickly fill in for people who um, might not know who you're referring to, uh, you you're talking about Amanda Duffy, who is yes, of course, sorry, I, yeah, yeah, more, more or less the acting. They're still my commissioner, which I find odd. Um, she works in Chicago. She's right there. She's um, mm-hmm. um, she's totally and completely committed. But I and I and I, you know, in, in regard to to when we were at God Soccer in Jacksonville, uh, right? It seems like almost a month ago now. But the yeah, the, there was a lot of there was a lot of for my you know for for nostalgic reasons. I'm looking at that presentation and thinking, wow, this looks 
very familiar. It looks like 1996, and it looks mm-hmm. like MLS. That's that's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. The partnerships uh, and, and their ability to to uh, to keep this thing moving in the right direction uh, is, and the numbers and the, the tendencies, and you got Portland really driving the ship there with you know an average of 17,000 coming to the games, and of course having the success to go along with it. Uh, some of the other you know, some of the other teams not having uh, the same kind of numbers on the on the uh, attendance side, but still, there's still a, a massive opportunity within. And I think, you know, look, when you, you had Salt Lake come into the picture this this past week, which will be a great venue for women's soccer. Um, I, I think it'll be uh, uh, one that will be embraced by the, by all the communities. And I, I think it's it's uh, it's a step in the right direction. You know, clearly they they lost the team, but they were able to. Uh, to bring a, a quality city uh, in, into the uh, into the fray with uh, Salt Lake. So the MLS Association, because because some people who speak with both of us on Twitter, you know, view MLS as the most evil entity ever created uh, in soccer. But in terms of these partnerships with NWSL, you would view that as a positive. As far as the um, Major League Soccer or the United States Soccer Federation, or both? Well, I would say MLS in this case, because we're talking about Salt Lake and right. Portland well, and it's, Houston so this, this and Orlando. Is, you know, it's, it's a, it requires some cooperation. It's not necessarily the, the WNBA model, but uh, to a certain extent, uh, th- that's an important part of it, to, to recognize where there is a stronghold on as far as fan bases go, and to to service those those cities that that want soccer, and I you know I, Deloitte Hanson has done, and I would say Merritt Paulson for that matter have have mm-hmm. stepped up and they've done some great things, and that's that's all an important part of of uh, of moving forward. All right, so let's pivot to youth soccer because this podcast is called Ranting Soccer Dad, and. You and I, I'm sure, both fit that description from time to time. We're close to the same age. We have well, then you should you should call Steve Gans. Steve Gans clearly falls into that category. I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, he's, he's, he does bring up his kids a lot, though. That's funny. <laughs> Steve has been on this podcast already. I've, I've talked with uh, Steve, Mike Winograd, uh, Kyle, now you, and so on. Um, I should be talking to Paul LaPointe soon. And so that's just a question of getting uh, Cal Jury and uh, the mysterious Carlos Cordero. Uh, on the show, uh, who have never heard speak in public. Um, so, but anyway, yeah, we are ranting soccer dads. I, I, your kids play at a higher level than mine, of course. But well, that's not, if, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I've, I've got just I just have more kids. That's all. <laughs> uh, my kids are not going to be in the development academy or ECNL. I'll put it that way. Um, okay. Well, and um, it. And actually, probably not make the high school team, uh, which is very competitive in this area. So, um, which is unfortunate because you know, I one of my regrets from high school was that I did not play soccer. And for me, it was they were asking me to play because this was a school, two hundred people. They knew that I was probably the best center back of my age in Athens, Georgia, which is not an accomplishment. And you didn't do it. Why didn't you do that? I hated my. I hated people. Um, yeah, you didn't like you didn't like the coach. Yeah. The, the coach was okay. It was I mean, one thing was I was a year ahead in school, so I was 
younger than the others, and you know, it can be the locker rooms can be a difficult place for you know sensitive, younger, smarter. Well, I don't want to say smarter, but more academically oriented kids. So I didn't do it. I ran track instead, and I, I regret that. But um, but enough about what I should have done differently in my life. Um, let's see. In youth soccer, um, just in general, what have you seen that you like uh, as a parent, and what would you most want to change? Well, I I, I do see that. You know, I'm on most occasions, and and you mentioned um, my kids, the ones that are playing now. My my oldest is off to college, and so she's elected to. I mean, at one minute I had a full ride scholarship to a UC school, and now I'm paying through the nose so she can become a doctor up in Seattle. But it's uh, that that's that's all part of it. But um, my son is plays on the Frost Off high school team. Uh, doesn't really. Um, uh, you know, as far as the club thing goes, or the, he started with AYSO, and uh, he, you know, he he's, he just loves to play and be with his friends. That's about it. My my 13 year old is very good. She's a part of the DA, and and she's shown a lot of promise and a lot of a lot of confusion there too. I mean, she's actually one of those kids who's going to elect in the very near future when she becomes a freshman in high school that she wants to play high school soccer, even though she is on the academy and has been recognized and ID'd as, as a, a player that um, uh, I guess she's in some database somewhere as, as a player to, to keep an eye on, but she's more interested in being a well-rounded human being um, and going to high school and participating in high school soccer. And I, I think it's great. Yeah. And you said that um, in SBAA a couple of years ago. I remember you, you closed with Don't tell your kids to not to play high school soccer. And I'm sorry that you did it because one of the things that, that people – you can have your, your opinions about it. I do not. I said this the other day at the U.S. Club uh, Forum is that how do you feel about high school soccer, blah, blah, blah. And my and, and I think Kyle made the point that it's tables like this where we need to make this decision. And then Winograd said it's tables like this where we need to make our decision. And I couldn't have disagreed more. I said it's the dinner table where that decision is made. It's not here. Federation mm-hmm. never gets to mandate whether you want to have a different life experience. That's not our choice. That's theirs, and I and I, I I'll say I'll, I'll stand firm on that because I I think that that's that's not that's not what a federation should be doing. It should be telling people how they want to live their lives. Um, if they're making a, a decision to, to not take part in an academy because uh, high school games have been deemed dangerous, uh, I think that's one of the one of the things, the words that they don't use, but they, they just simply say the risk-reward of it all um, is what they mean. But I have an eight-year-old that plays in club, and what do I like about it? This is soccer right now. I love the fact that um, it's competitive. I love that, that uh, there are uh, there's always a game. There's there's always a, a place to play. What I don't like is the, the fighting and the, the, the fragmentation of, of a misunderstanding of what is the best place to be and the fact that some of these organizations are pulling on the heartstrings of our parents and uh, it becomes about money. And the finances, the finances of this are pretty scary. Uh, I, my 13-year-old and my 8-year-old, it's costing me somewhere around sixty five to $7,000 a year, not including the travel that exists to participate in, in these tournaments which are deemed necessary or you're never going to get looked at and I think that that's 
that's unfair to do to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, is that combined or each sixty five hundred? Oh, that's combined for both of them. So, but but okay. that's pretty scary that you're spending three thousand dollars on a yeah. eight year old. Right. That's that's just that's not right. And whether we want to deem that as a a, a coaching uh, component of it, the seriousness of of where this thing is going and how serious parents are taking it at a very young age, and I don't think they have a full understanding of how detrimental they are uh, to their, their their kids' growth as a human being when they're when they're putting this much pressure on them at the, the age of seven, eight, nine, which is baffling to me. But um, and I, I try to do my part, you know, when when I'm with with my team, uh, and some of the parents sometimes get a little over emotional or or um, start to address certain issues uh, in a way that, that you need to remind them. And it's, it's a pretty simple conversation. You go, they're eight years old. They're eight. Can you mm-hmm. stop now, please? They're eight years <laughs> old. And, and that's, that's, you know, the insecurities. And there's sometimes these, these, these parents who are living vicariously through their children. Um, I, I think, I think there's a, there, there's an opportunity there for the Federation to step in maybe at a, at a younger age, uh, to help these parents, uh, understand their role in all this. And what, what it, what define what it means to be a good parent, um, not good parent, bad parent, but help people understand that, that, that that's not helping. It, it's not helping when you, when you act like uh, the way that they do, when they yell out dumb stuff from the sidelines, yelling at referees. They don't even realize that they're embarrassing <laughs> their kids. It's, it's, it's really, it's, you don't want them to be quiet, but when you have a, someone who, who doesn't know that they don't know? That's one thing. But if you have somebody that thinks they know that, but they don't know, uh, sometimes they can be very, um, they can be dangerous. That's a, that's just that's the, the bottom line. But um, there's a lot of things to like. There's a lot of things not to like. But I do believe that um, structure is going to help us. Uh, we we certainly we're kind of growing out of control. We love organic growth, but it's it's not necessarily conducive to. Uh, uh, Giving kids a direction, so there's a, there's a lot to do there. There's a lot to do there, and, and it's probably going to be the biggest challenge for the next president. So the federation, for the longest time, had just complete laissez-faire attitude, and it's just okay. Go, people were just forming their leagues, and so you had you know you could have multiple leads in one area, multiple. In fact, I thought one of the gutsiest things I've seen anyone say in this election so far was at the U.S. Club Soccer Forum when Steve Gans complained about having two state cups in Massachusetts uh, right. because of where he was. He was at – it was in – because it's U.S. club soccer's – I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say fault, or maybe I should. It's because of them that we have two state cups in Massachusetts and Virginia, where I live. And, um, and then you have, so now you're, could, left, you're left to figure out which state cup is more important. Which right. team is better than the other? Look, we, we are. You gotta understand something, Bo. We look at the professional level. How can we expect our youth to comply? And you know, whether it's it's the attitude that the federation took for all these years, just allow it to happen. We have two second divisions. We have two right. functioning second divisions at the professional level. You, you if you you make sense of that, and then. <laughs> Try and, and tell uh, U.S. Club or U.S.Y.S. that they can't do that, that they can't have a business. 
So, and, and then you throw the academy system in there, uh, which is the direction I thought you were going. Um, to confuse it even more. <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, well, well it's, because... It's, it's confusing. It, it is. And I've heard, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Sky Eddie Bruce, who uh, runs uh, Soccer Parenting uh, and has been organizing a lot of things along these lines. And one thing she's pointed out is that at the very least, we should have just a common vocabulary so that if I if I move from California to New Mexico and I say I want to enroll my child in a Premier League, that that would mean the same thing in New Mexico that it meant in California because we don't have that. We have no hmm. standards. We have no national standards. Um I mean, there, there have been some attempts to do that, but um, but not so much. Now, we're, then what we have seen, though, in, in the last 10 years, and the, the academy was perhaps the first part of it, the net salvo was all these mandates that came up. And I, mean, I can tell you personally, with the birth year mandate, um, I've been on the phone with someone from U.S. Soccer who has told me, oh, you're only worried about that because of your kid, you know, and, and I say, my kid is not at the development academy level. I, I, yes, I don't understand why my kid loses a year. And I'd love for someone – I know you and I both have the utmost respect for Tab Ramos. I still would like to ask Tab Ramos why it was necessary for my son to lose a year of development between the U9 and U12 years, which are the years you play the small – the years that you play serious kind of club soccer, but they're still small-sided – he had to jump from U9 to U11 because of me. And then he'll be playing U13 next year. And I don't understand why, and I guarantee you, and I guarantee the person from U.S. Soccer I was speaking with, I'm not the only one who feels that way. So you have these mandates that come down now that, um, and a lot of people mentioned at the U.S. Club Soccer Forum, that it seems like they weren't done with any input. Uh, in some cases, Without even thinking it through, I mean, you had for you had a year where the development academy and the rest of youth soccer were playing with different age groups. We're playing, were playing. They were all birth year, but one might be U thirteen and one would be U twelve because right. they had miscalculated. So, um, what do you do then to find that middle ground between you know letting everything just go and having, you know, there's a team in Virginia that, that I know that plays league games in Massachusetts, and I know people who quit that club because they, they didn't want to do that. Um, and so how you start the balance between being completely laissez-faire and then coming in and having heavy-handed mandates right. handed down <laughs> either, for, either, either from Chicago or, as you corrected Mike Winograd, from an apartment in New York um, – how do you strike that balance? Well, it's, it's look, and as, as far as you got to understand what the federation is trying to accomplish, and some of the the reasons behind the the mandates that we're seeing have, have been systematically, or I guess incrementally, um, these policies have a purpose, and it is all about. And let me repeat this: it is all about registration and when you get to the bottom of some of the issues that are happening right now with state associations and or the federation's uh, uh, inclusion and whether it's it's 
you know, laissez-faire, and then right at the end they come in with the mandate. Um, all of this is about manipulating the registration and creating a database. And the reason why those, those dates were realigned is it just made it easier for somebody who was trying to uh, organize this. And it, it, it right. wasn't about necessarily the development of players, and they can't lie to us and say that it was. They, they tried. Fixing that, fixing that for, well, they did, but, it, but fixing that yeah. problem is, is more complicated than one might think. But the, the, the reality is mm-hmm. the only reason why they changed the dates is because if it all aligned and it, and it made it a heck of a lot easier to just group them into um, uh, birth year. It just did. It just did. That was that, That's how that all went down. Now, when you look at what the, I guess, the next steps are, um, is through the academy systems and through the federation. Um, it looks to me as if, and I think to a lot of people are starting to, to wake up to realize this, is that maybe the state associations are getting cut out of the deal. Meaning, if the federation can systematically figure out a way to register all players directly through the federation, um, they they don't have to share that, that registration fee anymore with the state association. So if they get their way, essentially what what's going to happen here is the state associations will be obsolete. Now, I, I, I disagree with that. I think our country's too big. I think glomming it all together and trying to simplify it and financially gain from registration has nothing to do with the development of our players. Nothing to do. They're just making sure that they control the fact that a game's happening and they're financially gaining from it. Uh, I've taken the stance that I think that the state associations, I, I think uh, that they, they do need to achieve a certain form of autonomy, but they, they, they're not the problem uh, on most of these occasions. Sometimes they are. Sometimes sure. they very much are the problem. And if, if one or two or three or four state associations are getting it wrong, that doesn't mean everybody needs to get punished. That's why each state probably should be recognized as its own entity and be given the opportunity to do the business in their state because they know better than anybody um, for themselves, as opposed to uh, the federation saying, all right, not only do we not trust you or think you're very good at what you do, we're going to manipulate you and take over the registration. We'll take it from here. It's almost like that scene from from, uh, Die Hard where the police have pretty much got it all locked down and and there really isn't a whole lot they can do, but the feds show up and say, all right, you idiots, get out of here. We'll take it from here. And that's that's the feeling that state associations uh, have right now. They feel as if that message from whether it's the, the tower or the apartment is a very clean one, and it's, a, it, it's look, we'll, we'll take it from here, and this is the way we're going to do things. And I think the realization that it has nothing to do with development is sinking in now. Now, these academies are not producing players. There's too many of them. And the Federation is deeming that as the, the, the avenue through registration, not development, and, and financial gain, as opposed to recognizing that that's not how academy systems should be run. Uh, and it's a money grab. And the state associations have figured that out. So, Felix, I have to ask now whether you consider Die Hard a Christmas movie. So, uh, say again? I feel like I should ask now whether you consider Die Hard a Christmas movie. Oh, um, it's a, I think on that for a second because 
Yeah, I think it is. I mean, isn't isn't at the yeah. end? It's kind. Of, it's very similar to uh, Red October because at the end, isn't he on the plane going home with the presents? And then it all starts during Christmas, and presents are involved. So even though it's oh, yeah. bad people shooting each other, it, it's still a Christmas movie. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's like Mike and Mike, uh, which you filled in on once, I, I recall. Um, I did. Mike and Mike. I did. Yeah, Mike and Mike discussed it uh, for uh, for several years, and Paul Carr. Uh, who you and I both know, uh, on, yeah, their their stats person uh, says that he's the one to blame for them talking about that all the time. But um, <laughs> but hey, it's back the to topic. You. It's okay. Yeah, but so but um, I quickly back to the youth issues. I mean, yet the um, you know, yet U.S. club soccer, and I should point out, Kevin Payne was on this on this podcast October twenty fifth. Um, U.S. club soccer started for a reason, you know, because there there were things that. Um, U.S. youth soccer, perhaps both capitalized and lowercase, had not really done to adapt, and so there there were some things that. It, one of the things that struck me is that a lot of things start with for noble intentions. Right. It's just the the trick is, and you mentioned the second division in pro soccer. I mean, there are there were reasons why a bunch of teams got up and said, we're not going to participate in the USL anymore. It's just that now things have changed so much, and how do you put the genie back in the bottle? How do you get them all back together? And with, in, in U.S. clubs' case, you know, the, the differences with US, U.S. youth soccer seem a little different than they did 10 years ago, just as with the NASL. I mean, the NASL has none of the same teams that split off from the USL originally, less than 10 years ago. Correct. So, so do you think that to some extent you're going to be going in and trying to take these organizations that have gone apart but maybe could come back together and get them back together again? Well, I, I think – okay, one, I, I, I don't think it's wise to ever turn away money when it, when it, when it comes to someone who is trying – to uh, build and grow the game in in uh, in this country. I mean, I think that was one of the main points that uh, was made in this very recent lawsuit. Uh, the judge's comment was, "Where's the harm in this? I'm failing to see the harm in teams wanting to play professional soccer in this country." So, um, yeah, you want to try and bring them together. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the the better Examples of this was when Germany, um, and they had already, they were much more organized than we, maybe they will ever be, even then. Uh, they recognized their strengths. They recognized that they needed to all get on the same page. They recognized that their inclusion of their academies was not really a functioning component of, of their national team. And so you basically had a country say that the Federation recognized that they're not responsible for the development of players. It's not their job. And the league play needed to be and have some cohesion with the federation. So they all got on the same page. This is after they failed in the Euros, and they understood. All right, we need to build a foundation here. This is this is how it's going to work. And it's the first and second tier. Uh, the television money all lined up. Everyone understood what their function was. The academies understood what they were doing, and the academies were solely with professional teams. That's a huge part of this. Calling an academy or deeming an academy status to some 
club in the United States that has no affiliation whatsoever with a professional outfit and or a stadium or just a bunch of kids dropping their bags down and, and playing in a park somewhere, that really isn't an academy, is it? That's what we, we fail to recognize here. Academies are, are, are there to be a, a building block uh, through a, a ID uh, component, which allows the best players uh, in a certain area to be a part of a club, a club or a professional outfit that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for those kids. And then there's integration of those kids into a professional outfit. Anybody who knows anything about the game and the progression of a player will tell you that the age of 15, 16, and 17, uh, having the ability to take those players and put them in a professional environment, if that's, the, if that's what's been deemed the goal, uh, that's how an academy works. The academy systems in this country haven't made up their mind what they're doing. Are they producing players for college or are they producing pros? Once they make up their mind on that fact alone, then they have a direction. Right now, they do not. Right now, they just don't. So bringing all of this together, Bo, is the hardest part. But the challenge for me, uh, and I think anybody uh, that's going to be involved in this process moving forward, is to undo a lot of the, the, the work uh, that, that, that's just fragmented and organically growing in all different directions. Uh, directional uh, leadership is what's needed at this point. Hey, I got bad news. I am pulling up to the airport. You got one last question so that we can – but we're going to have to break. I think we've been on the phone for over an hour. We have. All right, last question. A lot of us in the U.S. soccer punditocracy think it will take years and years to change the U.S. soccer culture. I've heard you say that it will be a much shorter process. Why do you think that? Well, I, I think that when – we understand again what the what the goals are and what the direction is, as opposed to just letting this happen. Um, and, and just as, as you've said on numerous occasions on this cast, it's like you're, we've recognized that they've just allowed soccer to happen. But what you can't allow is for it's not an overriding philosophy, but it's, it's it certainly is having a direction and having a, a, a goal. And I, I think that inclusion um, of of all functions of, of U.S. soccer is, is, is imperative as we redefine what a we is in this country. But the truth is, getting a culture that understands of a club, that's one thing U.S. club does is that, and I know that, that rubs U.S.Y.S. wrong, but they fully on the importance of a club and teaching kids that staying with your club and staying uh, within uh, your community and not having to drive three and a half hours if you don't have to, uh, just to be a part of a club because somebody told you it was a better team. Uh, that kind of stuff is really making it problematic for everybody. People with dual cards, uh, insurance issues, driving over state lines, all of that stuff. When we teach our kids the importance of a club, we're teaching them something very important. And that's also a huge part of it of high school if, or college for that matter. If that is the goal, you got to be loyal to it. Loyalty is important. How can we teach a kid that someday on the men or the women's side wants to play for our country in the Olympics or the World Cup and they've bounced around to so many teams that, that it's just a matter, they don't even understand uh, what team unity is and understanding how you make other people better around you or how you 
are a part of, of a, an actual club or a team. That, that component, that part of our culture, which exists everywhere else in the world. Let's think of it this way. You grow up in just outside of Manchester. Maybe you're not good enough for Manchester City or United, but maybe you are one of those smaller clubs. And maybe you are a part of a, an academy, which, I mean, Southampton did this better than anybody for a long time. But truth is, you will always gravitate back to that because it meant something to you. It wasn't just a game and, your, and, the, and the color of your jersey changed six times this week. It was a club, and it was a feeling that, that you belong to something. It's important. It's important. It's a, it's, as, as we stray away from that and, and the way we do things right now, we kind of stray away from, again, uh, having a direction and having a purpose, and it's, it's all part of the message. I got to go, buddy. I'm getting on the plane. Oh, I'm getting out of the car to get on a plane, but uh, it was great talking to you. Always great to talk to you, Eric. Thanks a lot. Have a nice flight, and good luck the rest of the way. You got it, buddy. So there you have it. There's Eric Winalda, candidate for U.S. soccer president, and I think a very serious one. I know there are some people on on various message boards, Reddit uh, or Big Soccer or Twitter or wherever, who have this image of Eric as being kind of hot-headed and, you know, prone to saying just about anything. I, I think it should be clear at this point, that's not, that's not Eric. Uh, this is a very thoughtful candidate. Uh, yeah, it's someone who's passionate and will, will speak up. Um, but someone who I think understands the enormity of this job. So it's a good field of candidates when you look at it. It really is. Uh, I think we're pretty lucky to have all these people stepping, stepping up. And I've said before that Whatever happens, I hope everyone who's running stays involved somehow. You know, hey, we'll have a vice presidential election in two years. Let's see who steps up for that. Uh, there are various other ways to get on the board as well. And uh, we talked in this conversation about other people that we might like to see getting in, uh, getting onto the board and having a role. Uh, there are a lot of good people in soccer in this country. I mean, at some point I'm going to get back into being more cynical and so forth and, and really deliver some good rants for you. But uh, today I think this was a good productive discussion, and I look forward to speaking with Paul LaPointe and anyone else. And then, you know, once we've covered all the presidential candidates, then maybe we'll get back to talking with some people in youth soccer and uh, covering those issues as well. So see you as my lunch is apparently ready. I'll talk to you in a few days.